morning. So as you've all known, uh, I've been, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and uh, I've been uh, challenging uh, the uh, congregation to memorize two verses in the book of Hebrews. Can anybody tell me what those two verses are? All right, we have uh, Joy raising his hand and Shelby raising her hand. So why don't the two of you come up here? As you can tell, this is not a shocking surprise. We have a microphone. Uh, but uh, Joey and Shelby committed God's word to their heart, and we'd like to hear them say it. Please first say the reference and then the verses. Hebrews 12:1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Right, that was excellent. Well, go ahead and sit down. Thank you very much. I think it's, it's just as difficult to learn to say things in unison as it is to memorize them. Everybody has their own pace. About, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, trying to remember, might have been less, might have been seven years ago, I went to the doctor. My wife uh, felt I needed to have a uh, kind of a checkup, right? There was nothing obviously wrong with me. Maybe my wife knew something I didn't. But uh, I went to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, very nice to see you, Mr. Shapiro. Let me run these tests on you. And so they took some blood, and all these tests were run, and a week or two later, I come back to the office, and they tell me that, well, Mr. Shapiro, you have uh, high cholesterol. And uh, considering you know, all, all the checkups, we think you need to go, we think, I think, right? The doctor is a single person. Uh, you need to start watching what you eat, right? And uh, I got that talk that, uh, for the first time in my life, really concerning my health, right? All of you have seen probably that picture of the food pyramid, right? I mean, you get that probably in fourth grade or third grade. Nessie, when did you get that? When did you first see the food pyramid? Ellie? Preschool. Preschool, okay. <laughs> but somehow it's all very, I don't know what the word is, abstract, until you're sitting you know, in the doctor's office and the doctor is giving you the talk and explaining to you what the consequences will be if you're not eating uh, the, right, the right foods. So it uh, made it personal to me. And uh, today, as we look at the passage, we want to think about um, what is the Christian diet? What should a Christian be feeding on if they want to, to have a healthy Christian life, a healthy Christian life? Let's look at our passage, Hebrews uh, we're in chapter 13, 
almost at the end. This is the last chapter. We have one more message after this one. So for those of you who were hoping we would finish the book today, you'll have to wait one more week. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. So that's kind of where the thought of our diet comes from, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. First of all, is the question, who should we listen to when we're being told you should eat this or not eat that? Let's say uh, I was commiserating with my friends uh, at the Baskin-Robbins counter about the diet that the, uh, that the uh, doctor has put me on, and my friend assures me that Baskin-Robbins ice cream is very healthy for my heart, and I should come in and have several scoops a day. Who should I listen to, Joey? Should I listen to my doctor or the person selling the ice cream? Why? Why should I listen to my doctor? Yeah, so a doctor went to school and probably spent time learning and studying what's good for the human body and what's not. So here we have instruction for us as far as who we should listen to. It says, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. So in those days, the Bible was not yet written when this letter was, actually I shouldn't say, the Old Testament was written. It's possible some of the books of the New Testament have already been written, but they didn't have uh, you know, a Bible like this that they could just hold and turn to this page or that and find out exactly what God said. They were relying on, on people who knew, people who came and shared with them, right? The apostles came, uh, or, or teachers came, and they taught people the word of God. And uh, so the author here is directing the, uh, the Hebrew believers. So this is written uh, to Hebrew believers. Uh, remember those who, who spoke the word of God to you, right? And, and follow, follow their faith. These were, the, these were people who knew the word of God, and therefore uh, they, they had the, the authority, the knowledge on which uh, you could trust when it comes to knowing which foods to, to feed on. And, and we're, we're going to turn here and say when we talk about foods in this passage, we're really talking about doctrines or teachings, right? The teachings uh, of, the, of the Word of God. Now, Jesus warned that there would be people who would come and teach you things that are not true. He said in Matthew 7, beware of false prophets, that is, people who claim to be telling you the Word of God, but they're not true. They're not really, they're not really from God. He says, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. So if we think back to the illustration of the lady at the, uh, the Baskin-Robbins counter advising me to come and separate buy several scoops a day, do you think she may have had uh, some, um, I don't know, something personal to gain 
out of telling me to come and buy ice cream? Yes, she was making money out of it. And so when somebody comes and, and is teaching you something and you by following it, uh, 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 they're becoming wealthy through that exchange, there's immediately a reason to suspect there might be a problem here. This may not be the person uh, I want to listen to. Then he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the important point there is he doesn't change, right? So once a principle has been given, once a teaching has been given about Jesus, this is the way you come to God, and then somebody shows up the next day with a different teaching, you have to ask the question, what happened? Did Jesus change how we're supposed to come to God? And the answer is no, he doesn't change, right? And so immediately you would suspect that there's a problem when you're being given a different set of instructions than the one you were originally given uh, when you came to know God. Now it says, uh, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. Now, rather than being uh, vague about it, I thought we could pick uh, an example from the scripture where that happens, when actually somebody shows up and gives uh, additional instructions to the believers. So that happens in Acts chapter 15. So you can turn there or you can follow on the screen. Acts chapter 15. So this is um, maybe some years after Paul and, um, and Barnabas went and, and, and preached the gospel in Asia Minor, what is today Turkey. And uh, people have believed and churches have formed, it says certain men came down from Judea. So this is later, maybe a few years after the word of God first came there. It says certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, and this is what they taught, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So that was something new. They were not told beforehand they had to be circumcised. Uh, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So Paul and Barnabas did not agree with this new teaching that came out of Judea. They said, no, that's not true. You don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. This is not what Jesus taught us. And... Uh, and so there's an agreement in the church up there. Well, we'll send Paul and Barnabas to get aligned with the teaching in Jerusalem. Everybody recognized at the time that the source, the authority was coming from the disciples of Jesus, who at the time were in Jerusalem. Let's find out from them what really is the right way to get saved. So being sent on their way by the, the church, they passed through, through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles and caused great joy to all the brethren. So as they're coming down toward Jerusalem, they're telling everybody what God has done through Paul and Barnabas going and telling people about God, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many Gentiles became converted. They've, they've come to believe in the God of Israel and in Jesus being the Messiah that he sent to save them from their sins. Lives were transformed. Uh, uh, great changes were happening through this gospel that was being preached by the apostles. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders 
and they reported all the things that God had done with them. So they're clearly communicating, this is the message that we have been preaching, this is the result of what, of what happened. Uh, but then it said, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, meaning these were Pharisees who believed in Jesus, right? So this was a very strict uh, sect of Judaism, and, and there were some of those who believed that Jesus was really the Messiah, but here they're coming and they're standing up. They rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So here it is repeated, the same teaching, false teaching that they heard in, um, in Galatia by people coming from Judah. Now they're hearing it in the church in Jerusalem. Now, not everybody is saying it, just a certain group of people in the church is saying that. It says, now the apostles, apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. So they had a big council. Okay, well, let's talk about it. Right? What is it that we agree is what Jesus taught us that we need to follow? Do they need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved or not? Verse 7, and when they had much dispute, clearly there were divided opinions on this subject, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter is referring here to an incident that happened about five chapters earlier in the book of Acts where God appears to Peter in a dream and tells him to go with people he was going to send to Peter. Then somebody is knocking at the door at the same time who was sent by somebody else who had a vision of an angel sending them to, to Peter, uh, asking Peter to come and tell them what they needed to do. So God, God appears to Cornelius. I'm sorry, I'm getting the story a little bit out of order. God sends an angel to a centurion, so a Gentile called Cornelius, saying, you need to send for Peter, who you know, lives in a city over there in somebody's house. Right? And he will tell you what you need to do in order to be saved. So this Gentile centurion sends one of his soldiers, a couple of his soldiers, they come to Peter. God has prepared Peter to listen to them. Now Peter comes and he visits Cornelius and a bunch of other Gentiles in his house. Everybody was interested to hear what Peter had to say. And Peter starts sharing the gospel. And the gospel is, in essence, is this, that Jesus is the Son of God. He came into this world, became a man, lived a perfect life, and at the end of that life, he was crucified. And as he hung on the cross, God placed our sins upon Jesus, punished Jesus for us. Since Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again from the grave. And as, as Peter is sharing that message with Cornelius, God pulls down the Holy Spirit on Cornelius and the other Gentiles, and they start speaking out in tongues as evidence that they've really been saved. So what have they done? Have they, have they been circumcised? Have they started keeping the law of Moses? Have they done anything yet to deserve salvation? Nothing, right? And so it was, Peter is recounting this story as evidence that God could save the Gentiles without them being circumcised. They didn't have to become Jews before they received the Holy Spirit and become Christians. 
Right? So Peter is sharing it as evidence. Look, this is what Jesus did then. Okay, let me find where I was. Uh, verse 8, right? So God, this is Peter still talking. He's, he's saying, so God, who knows the heart, he knew the heart of these Gentiles, that they really believed, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. That's one of the things John the Baptist preached. He said that the one who would come after him, that is Jesus, he would baptize people with the Holy Spirit and with power. Right? And the apostles on the day of Pentecost received the Holy Spirit. There was a visual manifestation with the tongue of powers, and then they started speaking in tongues. Right? It was evidence that they really, Jesus really did what he said he would do in sending the Holy Spirit, and evidence that they were now um, uh, in Christ. He gave the same signs to the Gentiles, so it would be really clear that they were now at the same standing as the Jews who believed in Jesus. There was no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles who believed in Jesus. It, it says, and he made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. When the Gentiles believed in the gospel, God purified their hearts. He changed their hearts, right? Now, therefore, why? So this is now Peter asking the sect of the Pharisees, those who held this view that we need to go to the Gentiles and tell them they need to be circumcised, they need to keep the law of Moses. He's telling them, Peter is telling them, now therefore why do you test God? They were testing God because God showed how he felt about the matter. And now they were in disagreement with God about the subject. No, they have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You can't give them the Holy Spirit yet. There's something that they need to do first. Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? So a yoke was something you would put on a, an animal, a farm animal, to get them to farm for you, right? And what he's, he's using here, uh, it as an illustration for, is the law, right? To be circumcised and keep all the law of Moses. It's like a yoke. It was like a weight that they were trying to put on the Gentile believer in Jesus, which Peter is saying, you're putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. We were never able to keep the law. We could never keep all of the commandments that God had given. Why are you trying to put that on them? Right? It's not going to help them. Uh, there is a, a good verse, a set of verses about that. Romans 3, 19 through 20, it, it seems confusing because God did give Moses the law, right? The law came from God. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It was just never designed for salvation. It says this, Romans 3, 19 20 to 20, what was the purpose of the law? Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, meaning to the Jews, God gave the law for the Jews, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Why did God give the law to Israel? It was to convict mankind of sin. God took the best, sorry, the best stock that was available on the earth, still, you know, wasn't good enough, right? <laughs> 
and he gives them his perfect law and every reason to keep that law, every promise of blessing, if they would keep it, and how well did they keep the law God gave them. Well, we have the Old Testament as an account of what has happened. They failed. They repeatedly failed to keep the law, repeatedly uh, failed God's standards of righteousness and holiness, which he gave to them in the law. And so now, as humanity gathers around the nation of Israel and inspects the law of God and inspects the performance, they have to agree. Uh, it says that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Everybody would have to acknowledge their guiltiness, right? That we all have fallen short of of uh, God's standards of righteousness. And then he adds this statement, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. God did not give the law to save us. He gave us the law to show us that we fall below God's standard of righteousness. Right? And so as the, uh, they teach the Pharisees, we're bringing that into uh, Christianity and trying to put the law on people, Peter stood up and said, look, this is not going to help, right? This is not going to save them, right? Now, there's still a lot of useful things in the law of God. We don't throw the law of God out. We just recognize it describes God's standard of righteousness, and we want to follow it ourselves, but we don't look at it as the means to be saved. We don't tell people you have to keep the law in order to be saved. If we were going earlier and, and thinking about the Christian diet, this is not a healthy part of the Christian diet. The law, looking at the law as something I must meet in order to be approved by God, in order to be right with God, that is not healthy for a Christian. Right? It's called legalism. And then we'll let uh, Peter finish for us in verse 11 of Acts 15. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. That is, whether you were a Jew in, early, in the early Christian church or a Gentile, you were counting on the same thing, and that being the grace of God given through Jesus as your means of salvation. Right? Now, when we say the word grace, I know it's kind of a theological word, so we want to explain it. Uh, we often say grace is unmerited favor, meaning given something that you don't deserve. An illustration might be this. Let's say that uh, you were a homeless person, and I was to come by and, uh, and offer you a $5 bill. Would you take it? <laughs> then uh, what was that? You know, what did you do to deserve that $5 bill? You didn't do anything. So that's unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. That is grace. Now let's say I would say, Joanna, I have this $5 bill. I know you need it. And uh, I have grass that needs to be mowed. Uh, if you would come to my house and mow my grass, I will give you this $5 bill. Right? Now, would that be grace? No, because now you did something to deserve it. Right? Now, salvation in the Bible is taught as coming through grace. It's not something we earn. It's a gift of God. Ephesians uh, 2 is perhaps one of the clearest, um, clearest uh, passages about the subject, so we can turn there. In Ephesians 2 it says, 
But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, right? The only motivation I would have to, to come and give you the $5 bill without you doing anything for me is love, right? If I was rich in love, which I'm not claiming to be, but had I been like God, right, then that would be uh, an act of love. That's the motivation for salvation really comes from the heart of God. It's because God loves us, right? That is the reason behind salvation, not that we have earned it somehow, done anything to deserve salvation. Even when we were dead in trespasses, now the word dead in the Bible means separation. We were separated from God. The Bible says, in fact, we were enemies of God. Right, in our sinful state, and so it says dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then he says very clearly, by grace you have been saved. Right? So our salvation, the Bible is very clear, is a free gift from God, not something that we earn. Now, as we uh, talk about the, the Christian diet, right, this is something God wants us to feed on, right? So this is a teaching God wants us to uh, not just think about once, and now we're saved, and now we're going to forget about the grace of God. It's something God wants us to regularly uh, think about because it's something we continue to receive. It adds this in Ephesians 2. It adds, uh, and he raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So he talks about things that are, are still coming on, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So there's riches and graces that God wants to keep pouring upon us, and uh, therefore, it should be a subject that we should not grow tired of thinking about. Uh, a passage that came to my mind as I was thinking about it is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. There it says, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So this is a verse we often quote in respect to heaven is such a wonderful place that we just can't fathom how wonderful it is. And, and that's true. That's true that heaven is such a wonderful place. We haven't seen it. We haven't heard. We probably don't quite appreciate how wonderful it is. But that's not what this passage is about. Right? Because verse 10 says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. So now we're talking about a work of the Spirit of God in the heart of a believer that he works to reveal to us the things that God uh, is, does have in mind for us. And it says, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Right? The Spirit really knows what God has in mind for us. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. So we need the Spirit of God if we want to understand what God has in mind for us. But then he continues, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why did God give us the Holy Spirit? The answer is that we might know the things that have been freely 
given to us by God. God wants us to know his grace. He wants us to know the things that he freely gives to us. And we understand that we're saved by grace, but there's so many aspects to that word of salvation. There's so many good things that come to us through the grace of God that God wants us to be occupied with them. Right? It's not something we should hear once. It's something we should be, a subject we should be interested in and desire to understand more and more. What it is that God has freely given to us. Okay, let's move on in our passage in Hebrews. Uh, so we were studying in Hebrews 13, and there was a little bit of a turn in thought, and that's why I stopped after reading those first couple of verses. So we'll pick up in Hebrews 10. We don't want to forget what we just talked about, but see how it connects to the next passage. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, uh, as most of you remember, as we were looking at the book of Hebrews, the author will often turn to what we would call uh, an Old Testament picture in order to show us a New Testament truth, right? So in the Old Testament, they had the tabernacle, right, through which they would approach God. There was the Levitical system. God appointed priests. Uh, they had the Levites to help them, and there was a tabernacle through which they were to serve God. And if you were a good Jew, you would come to the tabernacle and do the different things that God said needed to be done. And in the tabernacle, the tabernacle there was an altar, right, where they would offer up the sacrifices. Now, let me say this, that in the Old Testament, or the First Covenant, there was the law, right, which we just talked about. The purpose of the law was ultimately to convict us of sin, to show us we're sinners. But there was also grace, and that grace was through the tabernacle, right? That's where animals were being offered to satisfy God. And if Israel did that, they would receive forgiveness of sin, right, and blessings that would follow through the tabernacle. Right? So the altar, in a sense, is a picture of grace. That's where the Jews came to, to receive something they did not deserve, but they wanted the grace of God. It was available there. Um, but he points out a fact about it. Right? He says, but we have an altar from which those who served the tabernacle had no right to eat. And he explains what he means. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. So some of the sacrifices, the priests were allowed to eat, and not just the priests, but also the people who brought the animal to the priest were allowed to eat part of that animal, depending on what the sacrifice was. But there was one great sacrifice they would do once a year on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, where the priest would take the blood and bring it all the way into into the uh, sanctuary of the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant. <clears throat> so it was, if you would, the greatest sacrifice. <clears throat> and of that sacrifice, they were not allowed to eat the animal. Right? That's what it's saying. The bodies of those animals had to be burned outside the camp. Why is he telling us this? Well, it's an evidence of the limitation of the benefits that were available through the, the Levitical system. It's similar 
in thought to what we've seen earlier in this book. Uh, a good example for that is uh, <clears throat> Hebrews 9, verse 6 and 8. It says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. So the same tabernacle, same priest, a different story. In this case, it, it points out that the tabernacle had two sections of the sanctuary. <clears throat> it had the, uh, the first part into which the priests would go, but then there was a veil, and behind the veil was the Holy of Holies where God was supposed to be, right? And, and what it points out, when these things were thus prepared, when the tabernacle was built, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, not into the part where God was performing the services, but into the second part, the high priest went alone, only one person, right? Once a year. Even that person could only enter once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins, people's sins committed in ignorance, right? So he's saying there's a picture here. Why is the access to God so limited? And the answer was, the Holy Spirit meaning the one who led Moses, communicated it to Moses as he was writing it, as, as he was sharing it with Israel. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So what it was saying is, look, this is just a picture. The way into the holiest was not yet made manifest. That was going to come later, and as if we continued in that passage, which us was through Jesus. Jesus opened the gate through which we can come into a relationship with God. So we have here in the tabernacle a picture, and now we have the fulfillment in Christ. So the author to the Hebrews is doing the same thing in chapter 13 as he talks about the altar and the fact that they could not partake of the, of the meat of the animal offered in the most holy sacrifice. In, in, the, in the Jewish calendar year, right? And again, therefore, this is just a picture, right? Not so with us, right? He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And he continues in verse 12, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So now we have the sacrifice through which the grace of God is really accessible to you and to me. Now, I, I skipped uh, part of my illustration as we're talking about a diet, right? Let's say my doctor came and told me that um, I needed to eat certain foods in order to stay healthy, right? It's possible that uh, my grocery store doesn't carry that particular food, and I might have to go uh, an extra effort in order to get that food, which would be help me uh, be healthier, right, in my body. Well, the same thing is true. Sometimes, uh, as Christians, we have to be careful where, where it is that we seek to get the grace of God. And uh, the Hebrew church was going through persecution at this time, right? So they, these, these were believers in Jesus, but uh, Nero has decided to burn half of Rome and blame the Christians for it. And so now there was this severe persecution that they were going through, 
And some of them were thinking, well, all we need to do is stop confessing the name of Jesus. Right? We don't have to talk about Jesus anymore. Maybe even just kind of go back to the grace of God accessible through the tabernacle, because, hey, God offered that too. And, uh, and so the author is here very careful to tell them, no, the grace of God can no longer be found in this place. Right? That was just a picture. Right? That's really why the book of, the Hebrew, book of Hebrews was written, to close the door. Look, this is no longer available. This was really just a picture God had for us, but the reality is in Christ. But then he tells them, what is it that they need to do if they want to partake of this grace offered through Christ? He says, therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. So he made a point here of the fact that Jesus suffered outside the gate. And we know literally so. He was crucified outside of Jerusalem. Now, the phrase outside the gate carries in it the picture that he was rejected. Right? Jesus was rejected by the nation of Israel, technically rejected by the whole world. Right? And so if we want to enjoy the grace of Christ, we have to be willing to step out with him into rejection. Right? Jesus told us, if, if, uh, if the world hates you, you know that it first hated me. Right? As believers, we're following Christ into an unpopular position with the world. The world does not want what Jesus was offering. Grace. They preferred a way of works that earns us credit with God. Right? All world religions are built on the same principle. There's something I can do to make myself good with God. Christ alone said there is nothing you can do to make you right with God, but it's okay because the grace of God sent me and I will die for your sins to give you eternal life for free. So come to me and you'll receive it. It is an unpopular doctrine. Right? You would think this is the most wonderful news that ever been heard. Right? And in fact, that's what it's called. The gospel means the good news. But the world doesn't like that gospel, doesn't like that doctrine. And so we must step out, and that's what the Hebrew believers had to do in spite of the persecution. They needed to step out and publicly confess their faith in Christ. They could not step back into the shadows because of persecution. Jesus said this, therefore whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So that's the place of grace. If we want to receive the grace of God, it must be through confession, public confession of the Lord Jesus. I was having a lunch on Friday. Was it Thursday? Thursday. <laughs> uh, with some uh, co-workers. And uh, one of them is, is trying to go on a diet. And so he was very good, and at the cafeteria he ordered the salad. And there he was sitting next to me. I had my homemade uh, food, uh, which apparently didn't create too much of a challenge for him. But then another coworker came, and he got the steak. And, uh, and my coworker who's having the, uh, the salad is looking at the other plate. And he's literally saying, is that good? <laughs> and uh, Because if it's good, I'm going to go buy myself one. 
And this coworker was nice and said, you know what, this is big enough steak for the two of us. And he cuts off half and gives it to my, to my uh, other coworker. But uh, it was a choice he made, right? He wanted to be on a diet, but it just looked too good. And uh, then a lot of the discussion after that was, well, you know, is it really worth it to be on a diet, you know, to, have to not eat chocolate or other things? just so you can live a few years longer, or is it better to enjoy your life? So there's an option, right? When it comes to a diet, yeah, I mean, you have your options. But uh, not so when it comes to the grace of God offered through Jesus. Uh, it said, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. What is a city? For I did not grow up in a city, and generally I was unhappy to move into a city, to the L.A. Uh, city, if you want to call it. Technically, it wasn't L.A. city, but it was part of the, you know, metropolis area of L.A. I, I was not happy about going there. But uh, in those days, the attraction of a city was, and to some extent it is today, that there was additional protection found in the city, right? A city had city walls around it, right? So if uh, a party of... of, uh, of uh, robbers came by, they couldn't just walk into your house and take away your things because there were the city walls right, protecting you. And, and that was the attraction. Now, it says that here we have no continuing city, meaning we really don't have safety in this world. There is nothing in this world we can really uh, have our confidence in. If you were to ask a, uh, a person from any religion, uh, do you know for sure that you are going to heaven? They would have to say no. They would say, I, I hope so. I'm trying to do enough good works uh, to, to get there. But do I know for sure? No. No, I, I don't know for sure. I don't have that ultimate confidence. What is it uh, that <coughs> gives us the confidence uh, is that we have a continuing uh, city, or we seek the city that is to come. And I thought maybe it's okay if we spend a couple of minutes reading in Revelation a description of, uh, of this city, the city that is to come. We read a couple of verses about it um, some weeks ago, and I stopped, and uh, I didn't continue because I didn't think the continuing passage was that useful at the time, but it kind of fits today. So Revelation chapter 21, almost the end of the Bible, says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So the Bible teaches that there is a city to come, and that city is the holy or the heavenly Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates, and the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. <clears throat> so this is the first thing that grabs your attention. Why in this city, the New Jerusalem, do you need any walls, right? I mean, we're talking about God has finished with sin, Right? He dealt with the problem. 
I believe that God is giving us a description of walls in this city as a picture of our safety, right? There's walls to the New Jerusalem. It, it describes us the confidence and the assurance we can have of our safety uh, being, being uh, in that city. And what is that safety based on? It describes it the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, and I think that captures in it the Old Testament the fact that God has come and he has revealed himself to mankind uh, and he, he did so through a nation, the nation of Israel, and that's the nation that had the 12 tribes. So our confidence is grounded in the word of God and God's original revelation in the Old Testament. Uh, it had, uh, that's the names of the, of the gates. Then it had angels guarding each gate. Now angels are pretty powerful. Uh, one angel took out the army of the greatest empire of the nation of earth at its time. That was the nation of Assyria. They sent an army to capture Jerusalem. God sends one angel. End result, you know, angel lives. 144,000 dead? No, 180,000, I forget. But, uh, I mean, clearly angels have uh, sufficient ability to fend off humans when it comes to, uh, to entering the uh, city of Jerusalem. Don't have to worry about the uh, God asleep, right? They don't need to sleep, so there is safety there. The gates on the east, the north, the south, and the west, there is free access to the kingdom of, the kingdom of God in heaven, right? The, the heavenly Jerusalem, God is blocking no one from coming, right? There's gates on every side, abundance of them, all who, who, are, who are willing to accept God's conditions. Then it adds in verse 14, and now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And that brings us into the New Testament. So we're resting upon God's revealed truth in the Old Testament, but we have the foundations provided for us by the apostles. And as we described, they were very clear about the fact that God is offering us free salvation through the Lord Jesus, based on what Jesus did for us on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. We can go on, but we're out of time. Let me just uh, uh, skip to that last verse I was going to read. It says, then he measured its wall 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. That wall was 200 feet tall. <laughs> Taller than any wall on the earth. Again, just emphasizing the fact that there is uh, complete safety taking God at his word and accepting uh, his offer of salvation through the Lord Jesus. Let me finish with the last two verses in our, in our section in the book of Hebrews, which is our application. It's verse 15, Therefore by him... Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Uh, I don't specifically recall, but I imagine that my doctor, when I, when I saw my doctor seven years ago, said to me, it's not enough to just eat right, you also need to do what, Joey? if you want to be healthy. Exercise, very good. You got to do exercise. 
You got to use the nutrients that God gives you, right? I, I eat right food. It comes into me. My body, in a wonderful way, breaks that into, uh, into things my body can use. And then I actually have to use it, right? I have to exercise, use the energy that food gives me if I want my body to be healthy. Uh, there's a picture of that in uh, two bodies of water in, in the land of Israel. Uh, let's see, is Nessia there? Are you paying attention? What are the two bodies of water in the nation of Israel? Okay, so I couldn't hear you, but if the answer was the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, that was correct. <laughs> so the Sea of Galilee, that's a, a sea or a lake in the north of Israel, and it's very healthy, right? It has fish living in it. Uh, and then at the very bottom of Israel, or toward the south, you have the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is dead. I believe there's some bacterial life form in it or something, but they all appearance, uh, appearances, it's a Dead Sea. The difference between these two is that the Sea of Galilee has an outflow, right? It doesn't just take water in, it also sends water out. The Dead Sea has no outflow, and as a result, the salts keep accumulating in it and making it an uh, 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 inhospitable environment for life, right? And so, in order for us to be healthy Christians, it's not enough to have good intake. The good intake is the grace of God. There also needs to be uh, an outflow, Right? And there's two outflows designed here. There's one upward, there's one sideways. The one upward is giving thanks to God. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now, I have here an illustration that my wife gave me permission to share. Hopefully, I do her justice. But when we lived in Berkeley, uh, there were homeless people uh, living there. And there was one homeless person that uh, had a broom, and he would just sweep up and down the street, and, and people would occasionally give him some money. And uh, my wife decided, you know, I'm going to give him some money, but, you know, something about she, and she goes all, all, all out in this thing. She didn't just give him money, she brought him a tray of brownies, right, with the money, and, uh, and, but he didn't see the money. I think the money was at the bottom, and with the tray of of brownies on top, and she offers it to him, and instead of, you know, thanking her and praising her, he complained. I'd rather have money. <laughs> so, Sharon never bought him any more brownies, <laughs> never gave him any more money, because she felt unappreciated, right? And in a similar way, you know, for the grace of God to have continuous flow in our in our, in our lives, there ought to be thanks to God, right? If, if we expect a homeless person to say thank you when we give him a $5 bill, what should God expect if he gives us eternal life, right? I think, as this passage says, uh, continually offer the sacrifice of praise. Uh, second, second outflow, this is the horizontal one. It says, do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Now it's talking about how I'm I am behaving with my fellow man, right? To do good and to share. If uh, somebody needs help, I should do them good. Uh, if I have something somebody doesn't have, I should share with them. Uh, my daughter, Eliana, taught me a new word this week. She's hiding. Uh, the new word, are you all ready for it? The new word is soligamy. 
Soligamy. Anybody knows what soligamy is? <laughs> I think Nessia's raising her hand. Nessia, if you're going to speak, I need you to move to the doorway so I have a chance of hearing you. You marry yourself. Right, so you've heard of the word, probably uh, polygamy, right? That means having multiple wives or husbands. Uh, and then monogamy, I think, is a proper word to describe marriage. I'm just committed to one person. So ligamy, I've just married myself. And apparently somebody came up with this about 20 years ago, and it might have been gaining some popularity. So I guess you could say something like this. If you marry yourself, you could say, I promise to take myself as my lawfully wedded person, to love and to hold in sickness and in health till death does me part. Right? So, you know, and we laugh about this. You know, this seems kind of funny, but sadly, this is the way we all tend to live. Right? We think about ourselves. Right? That's what soligamy is, is ultimately I think about myself and I make sure that I'm happy. Right? But we tend to do that uh, even, even as Christians, right, in the flesh. We tend to think about ourselves first instead of about others. And yet God wants us to think about others. One of my favorite stories about William Booth, um, he's the, known as General Booth because he started Salvation Army. Um, and uh, at the very end of his life, so they had this big convention. He started Salvation Army. It's, a, it's an amazing story. If you've never heard the story of, of uh, William Booth, I suggest that you get the biography. And I do have a copy, if anybody wants to listen to it uh, on CD. Um, I mean, he started with nothing, right? He was a very poor person. In fact, his, his parents had to basically uh, hire him off to, uh, to work at a pawn shop. And he would see people drinking themselves to death. Right? They would pawn off their own uh, work tools so that they could buy alcohol and, uh, and, and drink themselves to death, destroy their own families. And uh, he was moved and uh, started Salvation Army as a way of meeting people's you know, practical needs and at the same time ministering to their spiritual needs. And he, God did a great work through him. Today, Salvation Army seems to be mostly uh, serving practical purposes, but, uh, but he really moved a lot of people spiritually. Um, trying to think of his name. Uh, so a lot of, of well-known people have come out of that movement, the, 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 God's, God's movement through William Booth. Anyways, so he had a lot of people following, a lot of people joined the Salvation Army, and, uh, and they had these big conferences once a year, and uh, at the very end of his life, he just couldn't make it to the conference. He was in too poor of a health to make it. And uh, people urged him, you know, send, send out some encouraging message, right, to the Salvation Army, to this large conference uh, of people. And uh, he thought about it, and he sent one word. <clears throat> you know what that one word was? Others. Others. And uh, there's a hymn that was written called Others. I wanted to read to you in closing. And uh, maybe we'll skip the closing hymn because we're over time. So this will be, we'll end, end the meeting with this. It says, Lord, 
Help me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be, help me to live for others that I may live like thee. Help me in all the work I do to ever be sincere and true and know that all I do for you must needs be done for others. Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live like thee. Let self be crucified and slain and buried deep and all in vain may efforts be to rise again unless to live for others. Others, Lord, yes, others. Let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live like thee. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. We recognize that without the grace that comes to us through the Lord uh, Jesus, we could not know you. We could not be in this current blessed state of grace and uh, look in hope to being with you in that coming city. And uh, we recognize, Lord, that uh, you do want us to live for others just like you lived for others. You showed grace to others instead of thinking of yourself as you hang on the cross. It was for others. And we pray that you help us be like you in thinking of others as well, that you might be pleased. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.